Welcome to another life-impacting message from City Light Church, North Adelaide. You can find more great things like this at citylight.church slash North Adelaide. All right, welcome back everyone. Woo! Welcome back. I have great news, guys. We can continue our conversations over lunch today. So, woo! We're having Mexican. That's, that's another announcement, but I'll... I'll push that at the end of the service. All right, so today we are going to be reading from the Bible. Um, We are going to be reading from the Old Testament, still going through the minor prophets. Um, So we're going to be reading from Haggai and then be um, also in the New New Testament. So starting first off in Haggai chapter 2 verse 1 through 9. This is in um, 1468 in the Bibles in your pew. So Haggai chapter 2 verses 1 through 9. On the 21st day of the seventh month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Speak to Zerubbabel, son of Shiltiel, governor of Judah, to Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest and the remnant of the people. Ask them, who of you is left who saw this house in its former glory? How does it look to you now? Does it not seem to you like nothing? But now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord, and work, for I am with you, declares the Lord Almighty. This is what I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt, and my spirit remains with you. Do not fear. This is what the Lord Almighty says. In a little while, I will once more shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land, I will shake all the nations, and the desired of all nations will come, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord Almighty. The silver is mine, the gold is mine, declares the Lord Almighty. The glory of this present house will be greater than the glory of the former house, says the Lord Almighty, and in this place I will grant peace, declares the Lord Almighty. Next reading is coming from the New Testament, John chapter 2, 13 through 20. Oh, page 1648. So John chapter 2, 13 through 20. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found men selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip of the cords and drove out all from the temple area, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get out of here. How dare you turn my father's house into a market? His disciples remembered what is written, zeal for your house will consume me. Then the Jews demanded of him, what miraculous sign can you show us to prove that your authority is to do all of this? And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. The Jews replied, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you are going to raise it in three days? And here ends the reading. How are we all? Good morning, good morning, morning. I'm Andrew, as Ruth introduced before. I'm also that green team guy, so if you have any questions, please talk to me. would love to chat to you about that kind of thing. I mean, I, I am glad to be back. It's good to be back here. 
Um, shout out, welcome to all those here who are, if it's your first time here, or you're just new to faith, or you're coming to faith, or you're just exploring what Christianity is, like, warm welcome to you especially. And if you're wondering, what, what are we doing right now? We're, we've reached the part of the service where we are going to look at God's Word, the Bible. Right? And if you're, uh, shout out to those, if you're new and you're wanting to connect here, yeah, my encouragement for you, I can vouch myself for sure, um, this is a great place to know God and to know people, but also to be known. So I encourage you to get into a DG. You can talk to myself or anyone on the stage afterwards. That'll be awesome. Um, as far as I understand it, um, we've been going through the... Uh, we're at the end of the series, getting towards the end of the series of uh, Books We Don't Read, which is the series of Minor Prophets we're going through, I think. And so over the last nine uh, weeks or so, we've been overviewing this, the, this section of the Old Testament. And today is Haggai's turn. Um, it's the second shortest book in the Minor Prophets, but it doesn't mean it's short in content. Um, and although it's the second shortest, it has a lot to, uh, for us to, a lot uh, to say to us, right? And I encourage you, if you do have the time, please read it. It's only two chapters. Read through it and meditate on this week. I think you'll, you'll benefit from it greatly. But before getting into our passage today, I want to ask you um, uh, to ask your neighbor and, 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 and talk to each other just for a second, regardless if uh, international or locally, what is the greatest building that you've been to? What's the greatest one you've been to? And what do you remember about it? What's the greatest building you've been to? And what do you remember? Talk to amongst yourselves for like 60 seconds and we'll come back, hey? Let's bring it back, guys. Great. Let's bring it back. Awesome. I'd love a couple of people to just shout out buildings, the greatest buildings they've been to. Shout out. Anyone? Uh, Westminster Abbey. Westminster Abbey. That's pretty cool. Anyone else? Taj Mahal. Taj Mahal. That's great. Anyone, anything else? I'm not quite sure what that is. <laughs> But that sounds pretty cool. That sounds like it's got a fancy name. It must be cool, right? Um, I heard someone say here the Ra. So, um, like that cheese grater building on North Terrace. Oh my gosh. What the heck is that thing? Like, who designed that? Um, when you think of like the greatest buildings, um, I think of buildings like the Colosseum, right? It's in Rome. It's the largest amphitheater in the world where they, before UFC was cool, battling was cool, right? Then you have something like the, uh, the Cathedral Notre Dame here. It is in Paris, France. It began construction in 1163, and it is one of the finest examples of French Gothic architecture. 
Um, and then we have the Taj Mahal, something like that. It's in Agra, India. It's this ivory white marble Islamic mausoleum. I didn't know what a mausoleum was, so I Googled it, and it's actually, a, it houses a tomb. It's a bit om ominous, right? So, and then you have something like the Empire State Building. The Empire State Building, New York City, um, USA. It is a great American icon with its iconic spire. And then you've got something more modern, such as the Burj Khalifa, Dubai, UAE, the tallest building in the world, clocking at over 800 meters tall. To give you a reference, Rundle Mall is only 550 meters long. If you stack Rundle Mall vertically, it doesn't even beat the, 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 the Burj Khalifa. That's crazy. And when, when you think of grand buildings, you think of their sheer size, their magnitude, their scale, you think of their majesty and magnificence, and it fills us with this kind of awe. You, just, you know that time when you go into a building and you're just like, wow, wow, this is, this is astonishing. And whether or not we consciously realize it, when we are astonished and we say, wow, a part of our brain sizes us up and compares us and says, man, we are so small, we're tiny. You know, for, for God's people, for the Israelites, back in the Old Testament, there was such a building as well. And that's what our passage in Haggai is centered on today. In fact, the whole book of Haggai is centered on this building. Haggai is a prophetic book to the Jewish people of the time, encouraging them to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. Now, if you're wondering, you might be wondering this, how does the prophetic words addressed to an ancient group of people about a rebuilding project of a torn down religious site have anything to do with my personal life? What has that got to do with me, Andrew? Well, to answer that, we're gonna need to dig deep today. We're gonna need to understand the context. Uh, heads up, there's a lot of context around, surrounding this book and this period for, um, because of uh, uh, yeah, just a lot was going on at the time, but let me encourage you, stay with me today, right? Uh, stay with me as we navigate this part of God's story, because my hope and prayer is that today, as we look into Haggai and the temple, that you, whether you're a believer or not, that you are encouraged by the consistency and the persistence of God and his grace towards his people, amen? Amen. Well, let's pray together and ask God to do a work in us, eh? Um, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We know that your word is true, it is life, it is life-giving, it is active. Lord, as we come together and seek your scriptures this morning, we want to ultimately seek your face. Help us to understand, give us eyes to see, ears to hear. By your spirit, help our minds and hearts grasp the totality of what you've done for us. Father, help us see your beauty and your glory that it may change us. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing and acceptable in your sight. And we pray this thing in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Amen. So if you have your Bibles with you and Haggai 2, keep them open today. Uh, let's open up the passage and read it together. It says here in verses 1 to 3, I'll read it out for you. In the second year of King Darius, on the 21st day of the seventh month, the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Speak to Zerubbabel, son of Sheatiel, governor of Judah, to Joshua, son of jo Josadak, the high priest, and to the remnant of the people. Ask them, who of you is left who saw this house in its former glory? How does it look to you now? Does it not seem like nothing? 
If you're not sure what's going on here in the first three verses, let's, let, me, let me paint the picture, let me set the scene for you. Imagine you went to the original OG temple, the temple of Yahweh, by, built by King Solomon himself. It was crazy. It was the bee's knees, right? Here's a visual representation here. You see golden walls, golden doors, golden lampstands, golden altar, golden tables, and two four and a half meter high gold statues of this crazy looking cherubim thing. This kind of place would, made, would have made a Bond villain like Goldfinger foam at the mouth. But if you know your history, the history of Israel, of God's people, in, 50, uh, in 586 BC, King Nebuchadnezzar II besieged the kingdom of Judah and laid waste to the temple. Just that was prophesied. And, as, and God's people were exiled to Babylon because they did not keep their covenant with God. But roughly 70 years later, the Babylonians were conquered by these groups called the Persians. And as a result, King Cyrus of the Persians allows God's people to go back to Judah. And so a remnant came back and they started to rebuild the temple. Now, to you and me, it might seem like this temple idea was some sort of, a temple was some sort of lavish, over-the-top building, Right? But for the Israelites at the time, the temple had two, two big themes. The first theme is that the temple was the place of God's glory made manifest. And secondly, it was the place of God's sacrifice. It was the place of God's glory and of God's sacrifice. Now think about this. If, you're a Jew, if you were a Jew in exile, for the last 70 years or so, God's people had not had any sacrifices done to atone for their sin. They've missed out on experiencing the glory of God made manifest in the temple. And that glory of God made manifest is a special sign of God being with them. So for the average Jew not having a temple, that communicated to the returning exiles that God was not with them and they were still stuck in their sin. Michael Stead of um, Moore Theological College puts it in words kind of like this. He says, the lack of a temple is not a catastrophe around a building being knocked down. The lack of a temple is a catastrophe around the absence of God. That's not to say that God isn't omnipresent, but rather the lived experience of God's people at, the, at that time lacked the experience of God's glory made manifest. But let's go back a second. King Cyrus allows the remnant to return to Jerusalem and they actually do start building the temple and you see this in Ezra. But despite how important the temple was, it ironically stops. If you read in Ezra, the people were facing opposition from the locals and political forces and not only that, God's people got distracted from rebuilding and they got consumed with building up their own lives instead of building God's temple. And this is where the book of Haggai comes in. After Haggai's first oracle in chapter one, Zerubbabel, their leaders, Joshua, the high priest, and the people are encouraged and empowered and get their act together and they actually start rebuilding the temple. Now this is all well and good um, because they're looking back, uh, because they're building, back the, building up the temple again. But there's just one problem though. It's kind of like a major letdown. <laughs> it's kind of sad, man. You see in verse three, who of you is left who saw this house in its former glory? How does it look to you now? 
Does it not like seem like does it uh, does it not seem like nothing? In Ezra 3, you see a similar response to just the laying of the foundation. The older priests and Levites, who would have seen it in its heyday, were crying from sadness, looking at this temple, dude, what is this? They had seen what it was like in the past. They had expectations, but in fact, reality failed to meet those expectations. It just wasn't the same. It just wasn't the same. It's kind of like, you know, when Disney goes ahead and makes unnecessary remakes and sequels, you know what I'm talking about, right? They just, they just couldn't leave the, cut, the Lion King alone, right? They had to remake that. They couldn't leave Star Wars alone. They had to make sequels for that. And what do we get? We get lame imitations. We get lame imitations. Disney, just leave them alone. It's just not the same. And it's the same here with the temple. It's just not the same. Reality did not meet expectations. Temple 2.0 just didn't cut the mustard. Solomon painstakingly built the temple in a way that he would thought would truly was worth the glory of God. And in front of the Jews here, it's just a lame replica. And if you're a Jew seeing this and you saw the OG one, you're probably thinking, this does not honor God. God's not going to want to show off his glory in this. This is, this is bollocks. And when you start to think of the opposition that they're facing in the book of Ezra, this is just a constant uphill battle for them. And you can see, you can see how easy it would be to just, you know, see you later, throw in the towel, I'm done. Bye. But what does God tell Haggai to say next to his people? In verses four to five, it says this, read along with me. But now be strong, Zerubbabel, declares the Lord, be strong, Joshua, son of Josadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord, and work, for I am with you, declares the Lord Almighty. This is what I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt, and my spirit remains among you. Do not fear. God tells Haggai for them to be strong, not once, not twice, because it's three, three, three times to the leader, to the high priest, and to the people. And he tells them not to fear, and he tells them to work and rebuild the temple. But God doesn't simply, simply just command for it to do it, for them just to be strong and not to fear and to, for no reason. God isn't like your personal trainer or like Shia LaBeouf, and he's shouting at you, just be strong, just do it, just, just do it. He's not saying that at all. Rather, why did, why did God tell his people that they could be strong? Why does he exhort them to work and not be afraid? The reason is, he declared that he was with them. God was with his people. And that would have sounded a little controversial to the Jews at the time because, you know, temple, but the thing is, temple or no temple, God said he was with them. Yes, Michael was, said, was correct when he said that the catastrophe that returning Israel has experienced was the catastrophe around the absence of God and his glory made manifest. But here, God is saying that he's in fact still with them and he has not changed his mind about them at all. And how does he do this? He reminds them of how unchanging he is by reminding them of the covenant that he made with his people in Egypt. And you're thinking, what Egypt? Are you referring to Moses? I'm, yes, I'm referring to that Egypt, the Moses story. 
Um, side note here, so I don't, I'm not quite sure how long some of us have been Christians for, but in the Old Testament, the story of the Exodus and, and of God's people being plucked out of Egypt is a hugely defining point in the Old Testament. A lot, so much is centered around that. And in Haggai, the Exodus really makes a, a really, really important point here. If you're familiar with the, the events of Exodus, what does what what God tell Moses at the burning bush? when he calls him to service. What does he say? He says, I will be with you. What does God do for the Israelis, for the Israelites, when traveling through the wilderness? He was with them as a pillar of cloud during the day and a pillar of night during the night, and a pillar of fire during the night. What does God instruct the Israelites to build in the wilderness? In Exodus 25, it says, have them make a sanctuary for me and I will dwell among them. And we see here in verse five of Haggai two, here it's specifically referring to the covenant found in Exodus 29, 45 and 46. It says this, God's, this is God speaking here. Then I will dwell among the Israelites and be their God. They will know that I am the Lord, that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of Egypt so that I might dwell among them. I'm the Lord their God. So when it says here in Haggai's oracle for the people not to fear in verse six, it's not, it's not saying stop being a scaredy cat and grow up here. God's telling his people, you don't, have, you don't have to be fearful. You don't have to be fearful even in the hardship of life because my spirit is here with you. I am with you. And you can be sure that I'm with you because I promised your ancestors the same. We see here God calling back to his promises and he shows that he is faithful, friends. It was only by beholding their God and knowing that God was with them that the Israelites could be strong, could do the things that he wanted them to do and to live without fear. But Haggai doesn't just stop there. He continues to encourage and exhort the remnant Israelites. Let's read verses six to nine. This is what the Lord Almighty says. In a little while, I will once more shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land. I will shake all nations, and what is desired by all nations will come, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord Almighty. The silver is mine, and the gold is mine, declares the Lord Almighty. In here, the word Lord Almighty translated in some versions is in some versions it's known as Lord of hosts, right? And if you're wondering what that really means, it's referring to the absolute sovereign nature of God. That means that he has power over all things and he can use all things for his purposes. Haggai is telling the original recipients of this word, of this oracle, that God is going to give you the things that you need to build this temple. You see the word shake here? It's kind of like you know, when you shake the change out of your pocket. Um, these, all these things, all the things that God, that's mentioned in this article, all the things, all these things, God, it belongs to God and God can shake creation to bring the necessary tools and resources for the rebuilding of his temple. And note here the word glory, it's not really, actually, it's not actually referring to God's glory. Rather, it's actually referring to the completion of the temple. That's why we have, that's when we look at buildings, we say, look, the glory of this building and it's Haiti or whatever, when you think about it, right? So God, what God is saying here is God is promising that he will provide for the completion of this temple. 
And we know this is actually historically true because when the remnant came back from, from Babylon, essentially as part of King Cyrus's diplomacy deal, what he does is he sends back all the temple treasures and he actually funds, he, crazily, he funds the building of this temple. And King Cyrus was a pagan. God was going to provide for the rebuilding of his temple because he was the Lord of hosts. He was the Lord Almighty. He was the sovereign Lord of the universe and still is. But also, we find, that, we find out that the glory in this new temple wasn't just going to terminate in of itself at the completion of the rebuild, nor was it going to be just limited to the historical time of Haggai. In verse 9, it says, the glory of this present house, of the glory of this present house, will be greater than the glory of the former house, says the Lord Almighty. And in this place, I will grant peace, declares the Lord. Now, depending on who you talk to, uh, who you ask in history, if you move several hundred years forwards to like the, king, the time of the, the Maccabeans and and Herod, the, the King Herod and stuff, some people will say that the second the second temple was actually greater than the first temple because of all the further improvement projects that they did on top of it. And, and by, grand, by man's standards, was it greater? Maybe, perhaps. But if you look at the words, greater glory and grant peace, what Haggai is really referring to here, to the original hearers, was to look to the future where peace would come from the temple itself. Well, peace would come from the temple itself. And this is where our second reading comes in. If we fast forward 550 years later to the day of Jesus, let's set the scene here in John 2, verses 13 to 20. I'll read it out for you. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found that people selling cattle, sheep and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all of them from temple court, all of them from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and, and overturned the tables and overturned their tables. Those who, um, to those who sold doves, he said, "Get out, these out of here! Stop turning my father's house into a market." His disciples remembered that it is written, "Zeal for your house will consume me." The Jews then responded to him. What sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? And here's the kicker. This is what we want to focus in here on verses 19 to 20. Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. Destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. They replied, it's taken 46 years to build this temple and you're going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he had raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. Do you see what happened here, friends? Yes, it's really easy. It's super easy to focus on Jesus whipping fools and knocking over tables for mad, because of mad respect, disrespect. But let's take a step back here. Let's take a step back and look at the image of what's happened. What is Jesus claiming about himself? Jesus comes to the temple, talked about in Haggai, and he says, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. You see what he's doing? He's referring the temple is him. He is the temple. Here in John 2, the arrival of Jesus is the image of the arrival of the greater glory talked about in Haggai 2. 
Jesus, the image of the invisible God, didn't merely come to the temple. He is the temple of God. And he is the place of God's glory and of God's sacrifice. His body is in fact the sacrifice, which as it says in Haggai, it grants us peace. Not just, and this is not, not any peace at all, friends. Not, peace from, not just peace from turmoil, from our current circumstances. Jesus' Jesus's life, death, and resurrection brings us ultimate peace, ultimate transcendent, everlasting peace between God and his created beings. Jesus, through his body, as the true temple of God, grants peace between sinners and God. Haggai was well aware in his day that the temple mediated God's presence to God's people. And, as, and yes, Haggai was concerned about the temple at the, at the time, um, but Haggai also knew that the rebuilt temple would ultimately point to one and only one, that could, the one that could truly mediate God's presence and grant peace between God and his people. And that goes for the 5th century BC Jews or 21st century Gentiles like you and me. And as Christians today, if we keep looking forward to the story in the story of God, we get to see that what the total fulfillment of that greater glory looks like. In Revelation 21, 22, it says this. John, this is the words of John in his vision. I did not see a temple in that city. I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. Friends, at the end of the story of God, the total fulfillment of that latter glory of the temple is that there won't be any temple at all because there will be no need to mediate between God and his people. We, God's people will have unfettered, unrestricted, unlimited access to him. People won't need to stare and awe at the majesty and grandeur of a heavenly temple of a grand building. No. Rather, they will get to worship and live in awe at the Christ himself in the flesh and they will get to enjoy him forever. Friends, this fills me with so much hope for the future. This is not simply just a truth worth living for, it's a truth worth dying for. Now, I know what you're thinking, especially if you're like a really pragmatic person. Yeah, I know, Andrew, I know that we get to enjoy God forever. But how do these oracles of Haggai tangibly affect my life? Like, in the here and now. Well, I want to leave you with three kind of reflections and applications. And um, we'll see what God does here. Uh, the first one I'd like to talk about is to be strong and work, for he is with you. You know, we might not, we, we might not be a, a post-exilic community, that has been commanded to build a temple. But as the body of Christ in this world, we are playing a part of building God's kingdom, are we not? For for the believer, God has given each and every one of us unique gifts, talents, and abilities. And if you think you have no gifts, talents, and abilities, everyone has something. Everyone has something to offer because you've been uniquely wired by God. And he's placed us all in unique domains right now. You are, you are exactly where God wants you to be right now. Why? To speak and to act as his, as his ambassadors. Now, I need to qualify this for a second. Uh, I think some of us might think when we talk about building God's kingdom, it's just about making converts. And yes, Christians are meant to make disciples. We are disciples that make disciples. 
But faith isn't just limited to introducing, us, uh, introducing people to Jesus. God has uniquely wired us and placed us where we are to be bringers of life, to be bringers of light, to be bringers of shalom and peace, just like Christ did. Now, I'm not going to pretend that that's going to be easy, friends. That's not going to be easy. And I am well, I'm fully cognizant of the fact that it's increasingly challenging to be a Christian in the West. I'm not having a pity party here, but I'm just saying the facts, right? It's going to require much strength and courage. But the application here is not just to simply just do it, just be strong, just work. No but rather our ability to be strong and to live as God calls us flows from the reality that God is with us. Amen? For the believer, his spirit resides in you. And like the post-exilic community building the temple, God knows that well, he knows exactly what you need to do the work that he's put in front of you to do. This doesn't make uh, life easy or make being an ambassador for Christ any less confronting but we can be strong and participate in the work that God has for us, knowing that we are not alone and the Spirit empowers us to do His work. That leads me on to our second application and reflection. The second one is to trust God at His word. And I, and I again, realize this is really easy for me for the preacher up here to just, you know, just trust Jesus, keep trusting Jesus. That's really easy for me to say, but in reality, it's sometimes really hard to do. I get it. Doubts creep in. Our natural desires can often go contrary to what he wants. Maybe, maybe as, as a Christian, I don't know, you might be struggling with God's ethics and, and how our faith informs us to live. Just don't understand why, why would God do that? Why would God say for us to, to live this particular way? For some of us, we might be going through a season of life where it's just absolute turmoil and suffering. And to be honest, like I was back here since Friday night and I've just heard bombshell after bombshell after bombshell for a couple of people in their lives and they're going through some really hard stuff. So I'm really aware that people, are, it's, it's hard right now. Life can be really testing, understandably. And, I, and I, can, I can understand that we can find it hard to trust God in these times. Or maybe it's a, it's a season of singleness for you. Or maybe it's your mental health or physical health. And it can be challenging to trust God at his word. But friends, how do, we, how do we learn to trust anyone? How do we learn? You know what? We, we look at their track record and we see them come through time and time and time and time and time again. And then we start small and learn to trust them more and more each and every day. Friends, I urge you, look at God's story. Look at his track record in the Bible. Not just in Haggai, but the entirety of Scripture. Seeing the unified story of the 66 books in the Bible. So the same God, then same God now, coming through time and time and time again. He has shown us that he is faithful to his promises, friends. And especially for us on this side of the cross, we've got, we've got the privilege of seeing that God has fulfilled his greatest promise in bringing the true temple, the sending of God's glory and sacrifice in the flesh in Jesus Christ. I urge all of us here, look at God in his story. It's not just some moral fairy tale or feel-good myth, but, God is, but ask God's spirit 
to have his story mold you and shape you to trust him more. Friends, let's look up in awe and marvel at who God is because that is how you learn to trust him, friends. And this isn't just for the believers here today, but for those of us who are skeptical or not sure about God. Look at God, I implore, look at God's story and how it redounds back to the life and death and love and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I am confident that you will find a God that is worthy of your ultimate trust. And the third thing that leads on to our third application here, to rest in his granted peace. Haggai pointed his original readers to the one who grants ultimate peace between between them and God. And that's no different for us. For us believers today, we are only able to come to God as adopted children because he has granted us that peace. Friends, take comfort in knowing that the biggest problem that you have, the biggest problem that we have isn't our finances, isn't our investment portfolios or our superannuation, isn't our health or our jobs or our career, isn't our relationship status or our friends or even our family. The biggest problem that humanity has is the separation that exists between us and God because of sin. But the good news, friends, is that the gospel is that Jesus has come and it granted peace between us and God. That's why Jesus came as the Prince of Peace. That's why in John 14, 17, he tells his disciples, please, peace I leave with you. May peace I give to you. I do not give you as the, I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. And in Philippians 4, 7, be encouraged by this. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Now, this doesn't mean that life will be, for the believer, is you know, everything's oakly doakly, happy okay, right? Rather, having the peace that transcends all understanding means that regardless of what comes at us at life, we can still have joy and peace because we know that our ultimate victory lies in Jesus Christ and not our circumstances. I, sound, I know this sounds counter, like, naturally counterintuitive, because we, we, we can't see heaven. We can't see heaven with these two eyes here. But you know what I can see? I can see my upcoming bills, right? I get that. I can see that. But friends, this is why it transcends all understanding. Because God is the one who opens our eyes to the reality of how desperate we are without him. Only then can we find, truly find peace in the Prince of Peace. And, if, and this goes to those of us who aren't Christians or who, even us who are Christians, let me invite you to, into the peace that God grants us through trusting Jesus for your life. We've seen today in Haggai that he pushes us towards the glory and the sacrifice of Jesus. And that has ramifications for our lives today. But friends, let's keep looking towards him. Let's look at him in awe of who he is and what he's done for us. And until that day, all the way, until that day we get to enjoy him forever. Amen? Amen. Let's come together and pray together. Um, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your son. We thank you for doing what we could not do by ourselves.
for bringing us peace. Well, Father, I pray that you help us sit at Jesus' feet and be awestruck by his beauty, his glory, his perfection, his grace, his love. Help us to trust you for what you did for us on the cross. Help us to not just mentally ascend to it, but help make that help us uh, help us change and be more like you. Help that sit in our very core and our very inner being. Thank you, Lord, for being with us, for sending your Spirit. Thank you for the Spirit that empowers your people and gives us a peace beyond understanding. Encourage us and embolden us to trust you more as we dwell on your story and your glory. Help us to share the goodness of your goodness and your kindness, and we thank you for all you've done. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from City Light Church, North Adelaide. We hope you found it helpful, and we'd love for you to share this message with others. For more great content, more information about City Light Church, or to donate to the work of City Light Church, North Adelaide, visit us at citylight.church slash North Adelaide.